Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, thanks for joining us for this episode of New Books in Philosophy, which is part of the New Books Network. I'm Robert Talese. I'm professor of philosophy at Vanderbilt University. I co-host the program with Carrie Figder, Alexis McLeod, and Sarah Tyson. My guest today is Regina Rini. Regina is the Canada Research Chair in Philosophy of Moral and Social Cognition at York University in Toronto. Her research focuses on moral and political philosophy, broadly construed to encompass moral psychology, applied ethics, social philosophy, and political epistemology. Her new book has just been published with Routledge. It's titled The Ethics of Microaggression. Seemingly fleeting and barely legible insults, slights, and diminutions might seem morally insignificant. They're byproducts of ordinary thoughtlessness and insensitivity. Moreover, insofar as they inflict harm at all, the harm seems pretty minuscule. Hurt feelings, disappointment, annoyance, momentary frustration, and the like. Aren't such things as insults and put-downs in the eye of the beholder anyway? Surely, for the moral philosopher, they're bigger fish to fry. In the ethics of microaggression, Regina Rini takes seriously this kind of skeptical stance towards the phenomena of microaggression. Indeed, she finds that a common understanding of microaggression is vulnerable to skeptical challenges. However, she then develops and defends an alternative conception of microaggression, one that preserves the experiences of those who suffer it while quelling skeptical objections. Along the way, she also proposes strategies for morally dealing with microaggressors. Now, as usual, there's a lot to talk about, but why don't we begin as we typically do with the guest? Hi, Regina. Hi, Bob. Thanks so much for having me on. Well, thank you for uh, joining us. Um, Why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. So I teach at York University in Toronto, where I've been for a few years. Before that, I, I lived in New York City for about 10 years and various other places along the way, but I'm originally from Detroit. I mentioned all that since sometimes the national context matters. So I'm writing for a British publisher while I live and work in Canada, but my own background is American. So in case anybody's wondering what the various cultural things are, I'm trying to deal with all three. <laughs> so I'm, I'm, like you said, I'm a moral philosopher and I got into this project because I, it was not something I'd been researching for a long time, Rather, uh, the broad category I'm interested in has to do with moral disagreement and competing values. And so I came across a lot of these debates online about microaggression that, at least to me initially, seemed like somebody was misunderstanding how morality works or how moral blame works. And so initially, it looked to me like there was something was amiss. And it, it took a while, it took a couple of years of me looking into the background to realize, well, this is being misdescribed and misanalyzed, but there is something really important here. So like you said in your intro, uh, the, my motivation for getting into this project was trying to think, what can I do with philosophical tools, with the way moral philosophers think, to help us think more clearly about what had become a really contentious debate? Fabulous. And would you say, and, and we're getting, um, we'll, we'll talk a little bit about this when we get to the book, but um, w- which ends, uh, or at least one of the latter chapters, is about... Um, social media. And I know that that is also a site of philosophical concern for you. Um, did some of your own social media, <laughs> if you don't mind me asking, some of your observations about social media um, uh, play a role in um, uh, getting you interested in the topic? Absolutely. And, and not just observations about, but actually the medium itself. So that the weird part about this was that I 
initially on Facebook, started writing Facebook posts saying, huh, there's this contentious social debate about this word or this whatever. And I want to think hard about what people on both sides of this are trying to say and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And then I would argue with Facebook friends, a lot of them, other, other academic philosophers. And this book actually came out of a lot of those conversations about you know five, seven years ago, where I was trying to figure out what's going on with these complicated debates. So it was me commenting about Facebook and Twitter fights in a way that was meant to be not so much a fight, but an analysis. And then that gradually built up into a research program. Well, that sounds very interesting. Um, and an interesting way to... Um, to uh to take up a, a a philosophical project and um uh yours is not the first book i know that started as a uh a, a conversation on social media um so is it okay to turn to the book sure yeah so um i want to ask sort of a background kind of question to get us started because i'm guessing that i'm not the only one uh who was largely unaware of the history of the concept of microaggression. Um, now, I had uh, the vague idea that the term and the corresponding concept had originated in, you know, the work of some um, uh, psychological research. Um, but I, I guess I w- was under the impression that it had been coined fairly recently, maybe not um, as recently as it entered the sort of popular vernacular, <laughs> but um, I, I hadn't realized that um, this has been a concept within the, the sort of um, conceptual inventory uh, uh, of psychologists and, and others um, for, for decades and decades. So why don't we begin there? Can, can you tell us a little bit about the, the history of the concept? Sure. Yeah, I also initially had the same thought you did. I I probably only heard this term for the first time around maybe 2012, 2013. There was a blog called Oberlin Microaggressions about Oberlin, and it was mostly by anonymous posts by students at Oberlin writing about microaggressions they observed, and that got media attention. Mm. Around that time, people started hearing about it. Uh, But the term actually goes back quite a ways. For one stop on our our backwards historical tour would be 2007, probably before most of us had heard about it, when there was a paper published by the psychologist Daryl Wing Sue at Columbia. And that paper, I think, is historically responsible for why why media started talking about this and why we eventually heard about it. But in fact, the term goes back much, much further. The term is actually now 50 years old. 50 years ago this year, it was coined by Chester Pierce, who was a professor at Harvard, who's a professor of medicine and education. And he was an expert on stress. So he did a lot of research on on how people respond to stressful situations. He actually went to Antarctica, I think it was with the US military, and studied how people on bases in harsh environments handled the stressful environment in the 1950s. And the way he coined this term was his own experience as a black professor at Harvard in the 1960s. So he was, th- he was reflecting on his own encounters with white students who were notionally being polite and, and um, accepting of, of racial progress in the 1960s, but made it clear in subtle ways that they thought there was something amiss with the fact that a black professor was the one telling them information rather than the other way around. And so reflecting on those experiences, he began to formulate a theory. And so he published a paper in 1970 that gave us the term microaggression. Now, there's an interesting sidelight here about, about how where he got the term from and this idea of aggression has to do with football. Should I go into that? Yeah, yeah, that would be great. That was a really interesting sort of feature of the, the genesis of the, the, the thinking here. Yeah, and, and something I think most people haven't heard about. So, so Pierce had played football for Harvard in the 1940s. Uh, in 1947, actually, he broke the color barrier in Southern American collegiate football. He was the first black player allowed to go to a Southern game and play against the University of Virginia. And so 20 years later, when he was now a professor at Harvard and he wanted to study aggression, he signed up to be an assistant coach, which is not something that many professors do these days, go and be a coach with the football team, but apparently you could do that at Harvard in the 60s. And so he wrote He wrote about how what he observed there was the following. Uh, effective aggression on the football field doesn't look like what you think it does. I mean, it might, it might look, uh, look violent, but he, he said that a, effective aggression is actually subtle and slow 
and and spread out in a way that individual players can't see what they're doing. So the thought is something like this. If a, if a coach wants to teach their players how to be good aggressors over time, they drill them in lots of little small practical maneuvers, different ways of positioning yourself or moving around the ball of the other team that sets the other team off edge so that the players themselves may not even understand the big picture, what it is they're doing, but over time they're aggressing against the other team to push the other team back, to, to set the other team off balance, to get an advantage. And so his theory was that much like on the football field where only the coach has the whole big picture and the individual players don't, it might be true that in society, individual people don't see the thing they're part of. Now, there's no coach. There's no person behind the sidelines calling the shots in society. But it might be that over time we build up social structures that make us that we start repeating these small patterns of setting the other side off balance so that, that we gain an advantage. And that was his theory of racial microaggression. He thought that little tiny actions of just subtly calling somebody out, maybe suggesting they don't quite know what they're doing. The example he gives is how his white students would stay after class and tell him, a tenured professor, that he should probably rearrange the chairs a bit differently in the room, that sort of thing. And so he'd said these little tiny things that by themselves don't seem like a big deal, but they're actually part of a systematic pattern of small actions that collectively together hang together to be aggressive, to remind marginalized people that they are in fact in a lower position in a social hierarchy. So that's the idea, the really unusual genesis, but it came from his experience playing football and then observing a really effective coach teaching a team how to be aggressive without knowing what they're doing. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, uh in a world where of academics uh, today where, uh, you know, it would be unthinkable for somebody <laughs> to be a professor and also uh, part of the coaching uh, operation of a, of a team. Maybe, maybe there are all kinds of opportunities for intellectual work that we're missing out on because, um, you know, we stick in our offices and our libraries. Um, so you, you mentioned early in the book um, something that I think is important. And I should say that, um, you know, a week or so ago when I, uh, on my Twitter feed, you know, said, oh, I'm really enjoying Regina Rini's book on microaggression, um, which is, you know, just part of the course of sort of what I do when I'm, you know, getting ready to interview someone for this program, sort of put a, a photo of myself with the book. And um, I, I don't know if, if you noticed, but there were lots of, I mean, more than usual sort of replies to that email. Um saying things like, um, well, you know, this is a, this is a dummy phenomenon because it's all subjective and, um, what a, you know, what a thing to write a book about. So, um, that was interesting. Uh, so I think it's important, <laughs> uh, uh, to, um, uh, to mention that, uh, as you reveal early in the book, um, you know, you began writing as a kind of microaggression skeptic or maybe, a, a, an agnostic or something. Um, and, um, I found one of the really ref the, the really refreshing um, that you take very seriously um, a range of um, sort of skeptical um, uh, objections and and skeptical postures towards the phenomena. Um, so maybe one way to do this can you just lay out in a preliminary way what microaggression skepticism is. Sure. Yeah. And I'm glad you raised the point because a lot of people just hear this term and they, they sort of stop listening. There's a bit of right. an irony to it. A lot of people who do that say that they are critical thinkers or rationalists, but when they hear the term microaggression, they just sort of tune out and they stop critically thinking, which is frustrating because like you said, I came into this being somewhat skeptical myself. And then I discovered that once I started thinking about it very carefully, I realized that this was the situation was more complicated than it initially seemed to me. So let me distinguish a couple of ways you could be a skeptic here. One, you could be like a hardcore absolute skeptic about it and say, oh, there's no such thing as marginalization or oppression. There's no such thing as, as people of color or women or LGBT people or disabled people being mistreated. Everyone, everything's fine these days. And so since there's no such thing as oppression, there can't be microaggression either. There can't be these small examples of, of oppressive mistreatment. I don't think most people believe that. I think very few people believe that. But especially on social media, sometimes you do encounter people who have that attitude. The much more common one and the one that was closer to my own form of skepticism was, of course, there's oppression. 
Of course, there are some cases of small scale micro forms of oppressive treatment, but the way the ones we usually see popping up on social media posts, for example, tend to be cases where it looks like somebody overreacted. There was just this one tiny thing that some that the person who did it probably didn't quite realize what they were doing. They didn't even understand what the word meant or they did it by accident. And then then 30,000 people piled on them on social media to tell them they're terrible, et cetera, et cetera. And so that, that this lesser form of skepticism is the kind that says, I mean, come on, come, these things aren't great, but they're not like, it's not that big a deal. It's that kind of skepticism. Sure, oppression's real. Sure, it must happen sometimes, but it's not that big a deal. And that was closer to the form of skepticism I started from. I wouldn't have put it that way, but I, I did worry that, that some people were overreacting. And then the, the question for me then was, once I dug into it, was it really still true that this was, that that was the right way to understand it? This really was an overreaction or was it that I was missing a part of the picture? And a big part of the book is to show that once we understand the context, there, uh, microaggressions are playing a role in this, like, like Chester Pierce said, this systemic pattern destabilizing marginalized people. And that is a big deal. So even if the one individual incident is not the sort of thing that is best handled by 30,000 people piling on you on Twitter, it still is something we can't just dismiss or ignore because we haven't figured out how to solve the problem yet. So that's that's kind of the framing here. Um, is I, I started from, yeah, I, I, I initially thought people were sometimes overreacting to this. And then it was a question of understanding why that, why that overreaction... Why would, in one sense, yes, it's an overreaction to pile on on Twitter. In another sense, it's an underreaction to treat it as just a one-off personal fight on Twitter, when in fact there's these deeper systemic problems that we're not addressing by having fights on Twitter. Right. And can I get you to um, just say a little bit more about wh- what you in the book called the sort of the, the issue about subjectivity? Because uh, again, as a as a person who's sort of on the this the periphery of at least the the, the philosophical uh, and conceptual issues here, um, uh, less so since I've read your book, by the way. Um, it's um, one one version or one sort of preamble to a kind of skeptical stance that um, I'm familiar with uh, is this inference from what sounds to me like a. a um, a, a kind of plausible factual claim that uh, the, the 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 product of microaggressive acts is something subjective, <laughs> um, in that it resides in the subject, <laughs> uh, to to this conclusion that therefore the phenomena aren't real um, and can be dismissed which strikes me as a very um, unpromising inference in all kinds of ways. Uh, you know, ins- our in- insults are real, right? <laughs> They're subjective. So um, uh, can you tell us a little bit about that, that, that sort of version of the skeptical stance that starts with some claim about the lack of objectivity about the phenomenon? Yeah, right. That's. I think it's a really good place to start because, of course, these are situations that are often contentious. People disagree in their perception of what's happened in the particular situation. And so, um, like you said, it is a dubious inference to go too quickly from subjectivity to there is nothing there there. Um, Let let me quickly mention that, let me quickly diffuse that thought. And then I'll say a bit more about about the plausible, about why subjectivity is a worry. So um, we can't just assume that just because something's subjective, there's no there there. Think about experiences of temperature like suppose you work in an office, this is you know not during COVID times, you're in an open plan office, and some people are cold and some people aren't, because people have different bodies and people react differently to different ambient temperatures. It's not very helpful to say, oh, well, clearly experiences of temperatures are subjective, therefore there's no such thing as being cold. That seems like a mistake. So even if even as I think we do need to agree there is a subjective element to what's going on in microaggression, that by itself shouldn't cause us to immediately say, oh, subjective, therefore not real. Um, But the reason why subjectivity matters here in a way that it doesn't matter in the temperature case, at least not as much, is that these things, these things we're talking about, racism, sexism, homophobia, etc., these things are socially volatile. People don't want to be accused or feel perceive that they're being accused of being a bigot. 
And if we understand microaggression talk as being a contest about who gets to count as bigoted or prejudiced, then subjectivity really gets tricky because people don't want to be accused of this terrible thing on the basis of a subjective perception that they can't challenge. And so I think that's what's driving a lot of the debate. The problem is that it's been misdiagnosed as a scientific debate or a debate about the concept about trying to work out this notion of subjectivity. But what we're actually trying to argue about is that political and philosophical question, that ethical question of what to do about the fact that people are inadvertently committing small acts of oppression. Right, great. So that makes a nice um, segue uh, into uh, what I suspect is um, a, a, a view about what microaggression is that I should say, I suspect is um, pretty close to um, the idiomatic conception, if, if, if the folk conception, if we can speak in these terms of microaggression, um, this, what you call the motivational account. Um, and, you know, you're, you know, you're clear that it's clear that you think that um, the motivational account is vulnerable to certain of, not all, but certain of the skeptical concerns about the phenomena. So could you lay out that, 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 um, the motivational account and then say something about why some of the skeptical concerns about the phenomena, you know, uberhaupt as such, you know, uh, um, might, you know, hit their targets with respect to the, the motivational version of the phenomenon. Yeah. So basically what we're talking about now is we're trying to define what a microaggression is. A lot of the definitions that exist in the literature are kind of vague. A lot of them come from psychological theory. They're not from philosophy. They're not from. They're, they're not. They're not um, defined in the precise way that philosophers like to define concepts. And so, part of the project of the book was to use to get a bit sharper about this. So, the motivational account is what I think is sort of the the standard de facto account in the literature until pretty recently. And it's the claim that for something to be a microaggression, it's got to be a small act of oppression or marginalization that is caused by an unconscious mental state of the perpetrator. So it's something like the person who microaggresses may not know what they're doing, but somewhere in their brain, somewhere in their mind, some implicit process is causing them to treat another person unfairly. And that's why this person's, that's why something bad ends up happening. That's why somebody ends up being offended or somebody ends up being treated in an undignified way, etc. And so according to the motivational account, something only counts as a microaggression if there is this bit of, their psycho- of the perpetrator's psychology driving them. And the reason why that makes the account vulnerable to, uh, to, to skepticism is that we don't have access to those unconscious cognitive states. Now, we can do lots of inference about when they might occur, but we, we can't definitively settle that they're happening in a particular case. So let me give an example. This is just an example in the book, and I'm borrowing this example from Daryl Wing Sue, the psychologist at Columbia, who did a lot to make people aware of this concept. Sue is talking about being on an airplane with a colleague of his, um, and they are sitting in the second row. It's a tiny little airplane, and the the flight attendant comes by and says, "We need to balance the weight on the plane before we can take off. And uh, would you and your colleague sitting next to you please move to the back of the airplane so we can balance the weight?" And Sue says to her, "Well, what about the white people in the row in front of me? Me and my colleague and I are the only people of color on this plane, and you've asked us to more or less move to the back of the bus." And the flight attendant is, is very offended by this and says, oh, that wasn't what I was thinking. So Sue gives this as a, as a sort of central example of a microaggression case. And we can see the role of subjectivity here. Sue and his colleague interpret what she's doing as a racialized decision she's making. She interprets it as something else, certainly not racialized. It doesn't, the story doesn't tell us why she picked the people in the second row, although I imagined it was because they're slightly closer to the back of the little plane than the people in the front row, but it doesn't really matter. The point is that um, Sue's hypothesis is that she's being driven by some sort of non-conscious psychological drive that even she doesn't have access to. And so if we accept the motivational account, then whether this counts as a microaggression at all turns on facts that in the real world, no one will ever have access to. That is what's going on in this flight attendant's mind. 
And if you repeat that theory over and over again for every single instance of microaggression, it's not surprising you end up being a bit skeptical because over and over again, we're going to have to say to decide whether or not a particular instance counts as a microaggression, we have to know facts that no one in the real world is actually in a position to know about the non-conscious psychology of the people involved. So first part of the book for me is about laying that out clearly and suggesting we need to move away from this account. We need to move away from assuming that some, that there has to be this non-conscious prejudiced cognition in order for something to count as a microaggression because that's what makes the account open the, vulnerable to this sort of skepticism. Excellent. And, and, and do you think that um, one of the, I, this isn't um, sort of, argued explicitly in the book, but it got me thinking is sort of, if we accept the motivational account of microaggression, then it looks as if there's this um, morally troubling, it seems to me, um, maneuver that's available to people who want to defend themselves against the charge that they have microaggressed, or third parties who are skeptical about the phenomena, which is that um, because now we're if the motive, if we're assuming the motivational account, when somebody points to something and calls it a microaggression, that's an ascription of some sort of psychological state of the, the alleged perpetrator. It seems like it always just makes possible the rejoinder. Well, couldn't it have been this other motive? Is you know, couldn't this other drive uh, or this other psychological state have been behind it? Why, you know, haven't, you haven't eliminated all the possible, you know, sort of psychological mechanisms that explain that behavior. And so bad on you because you now have gone and given the morally, you know, you've attributed something morally problematic to another person before you eliminated all of the innocent explanations. Does that seem right? Yeah, exactly. And, and this is what happens a lot. So another problem with the motivational account is that it leads to exactly that happening which means that when marginalized people try to report on a microaggression happening to them, and by report, I mean just like, you know, tell a friend that it happened. Um, the friend might say something like, well, are you sure it couldn't have been this other thing? Don't, shouldn't we think best of people? Shouldn't we assume, shouldn't we hold off on assuming that they have uh, sexist or racist motivations unless there's no other possible explanation? And of course, that is the right thing to do if, if, you know, what we're trying to do is, you know, put in jail all the racists and sexists. Obviously, then we need to look for every possible explanation. But the point of talking about microaggressions is not to put anyone in jail. It's not to punish anyone ever. It's rather to acknowledge the reality that a marginalized person has been, has experienced something that seems to them like it might be connected to their, their status as a marginalized person uh, without necessarily drawing final for all time conclusions about what motivated the person who did it. And so the thought here is that like it's bad for everybody involved if every time we talk about microaggression, we just get into a fight about what's going on in the non-conscious mind of the alleged perpetrator. It's bad for the perpetrator because they get defensive. It's also bad for the person noting the microaggression because they probably won't be believed or they'll be forced to endlessly look for alternative explanations and basically dismiss their own experience. And so I think that there's psychological, philosophical, and moral reasons to think the motivational account's been misleading us. Good. And that, that again, makes a nice segue into your alternative sort of account, which you think doesn't have this sort of um, aspect of, of inviting an extra burdening of the people who uh, uh, claim to be the targets of microaggression, um, uh, and also doesn't involve the um, interpretation of the, the the psychology of the aggressors. So you call this the ambiguous experience account. Um, can you lay that out for us? Sure. Yeah. So the idea here is to shift our focus from the perpetrator, the person who does a microaggression and whatever's going on in their, their unconscious mind to the experience of the target, the person who says, I've just been microaggressed or feels I've just been microaggressed. And the idea here is to make their experience the sole criteria of whether a microaggression has happened. Now, let me be really clear about what that means, because people tend to misinterpret that if you say it too vaguely. My thought here is something like this. For an event to be a microaggression, it needs to be the case that a marginalized person, a person who's, who's a target of an oppressive category, um, thinks that they have just experienced something that possibly but not certainly is tied to their status as a member of a marginalized group. 
So in other words, something just happened to me. It seems like, it seems to me like it probably had something to do with some form of oppression. Um, I'm not certain though. And that's it. That's what counts as a microaggression. Now, notice some things about this account. This doesn't necessarily presume that whatever just happened has to do with motivations of the perpetrator or any other person. In fact, in the microaggression literature, there's a category of microaggressions called environmental microaggressions, where there is no perpetrator at all. There's not one person who did it. A really common example of this is um, students who are people of color at universities that are predominantly white will sometimes report being the only student in a classroom who's a person of color. Walking into the room on the first day of class and realizing you're the only person of color in the room is something that a number of students have reported as a sensation of feeling a, um, feeling oppressive context being manifested in the area around them. And no one is claiming that there was some villain there, some racially motivated perpetrator who engineered the room so that this person would end up feeling marginalized. Rather, a bunch of social circumstances outside of anybody's immediate control conspired to put that student in an uncomfortable position. So that counts as a microaggression because the student experiences it as possibly, but not certainly, caused due to oppressive social context that led to that situation happening. So notice then, on the ambiguous experience account, these moral questions about when uh, we're not forced to answer all of the big moral questions about who do we call a, a prejudiced person, who do we call a bigot whenever we talk about microaggression, because we don't assume that the experience necessarily leads to the conclusion that somebody has a, an oppressive psychology in the situation. That might be true, and I give some evidence in the book to think that it will often be true, and often it is going to be true, that somebody involved in the microaggressive circumstance has something, something driving them. But that's not necessarily true, because the focus now is not on, um, on assigning blame immediately. It's instead upon acknowledging the experience of the person who's being targeted this, and acknowledging that that experience of being, being, I think it's possibly true, but not certainly true, is in a certain sense traumatic. That ambiguity of the experience itself, not being sure exactly what's just happened to you. Remember back to Pierce's original idea drawn from football, the thought is that an, an effective offense destabilizes the opponents. They can't quite understand what's happening or how they're getting pushed back. And that's supposed to be the idea here. Microaggressions are harmful in part because they're ambiguous, because it's really hard for the person to understand what's happening around them. So can I ask... Um about an implication, I guess, of the ambiguous experience account, as you were just uh, explaining it. So then it seems as if um, uh, it's a necessary condition for one's being um, uh, microaggressed against mm -hmm. is to have conceptualized one's own marginalization. Is that right? I think so. Yes. I mean, it depends on how, how much weight you want to put on the idea of conceptualizing, Good. but yes. Yeah. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about that? Because, you know, as you were just explaining it, so I was thinking, I was sort of like being a philosopher and, yeah. and not just an interviewer about a philosophy book. And I just want to, I'm like, is that an unwelcome implication? Uh, not to me, although it's obviously it's going to be disputed. So there's a couple of different ways you might put pressure on this. One is to say, well, some people believe they're a member of a marginalized group or an oppressed group when they're not. So take, for example, evangelical Christians in, in many parts of the United States. And I, I want to allow, there may be special subcultures in the U.S. where evangelical Christians are oppressed. I, that's possible, but I don't think it's generically true everywhere in the United States. And in particular, I don't think it's true if an evangelical Christian asserts that they are being oppressed because they witnessed a gay couple kissing in a public park. I don't think that counts as oppression. I think that's a misidentification of who is oppressed. And yet, on one reading of what I've said, if the evangelical Christian says, I felt oppressed when I witnessed gay couples kissing in the park, then therefore it's a microaggression. I don't think that's right, because the objective part has to do with, is there in fact a category of oppression in the world such it, in 2020 in the United States of America, evangelical Christians are generally oppressed, generally denied access to housing and to jobs uh, on the basis merely of being evangelical Christian. No, that's not true generically. Whereas it is actually true that members of, um, of uh, people of color, LGBT people, women, disabled people, other groups are in some places denied access to those basic resources. So oppression is an objective phenomenon. 
the subjectivity part comes in whether the particular case counts as an instance of that objective oppressive phenomenon. So that's one way I want to head off a misunderstanding. I'm not saying that it's up to everybody to decide whenever they think they're microaggressed. It has to be true that you actually are a member of a genuinely oppressed category. However, what is down to your perception is the particular circumstance, whether or not that general category is being invoked. So to that extent, I think you're right, that there needs to be this sense of self-conceptualizing accurately as a person who is a member of a group that is generally marginalized or oppressed. Good. That's very, very, very helpful. Um, so uh, let's pick up on the the issue about blame and agency. And, and um, you know, for uh, philosophers, particularly listening, there's um, a couple of chapters that address all kinds of familiar um, sort of philosophical wrinkles about moral luck and control and these sorts of things. But let me ask you sort of a very broad kind of question, um, because the ambiguous experience account in, insofar as it pulls the phenomena away from sort of ascriptions of, of problematic psychological tendencies and dispositions uh, on behalf of the, or on the part of the aggressors, um, raises all kinds of interesting questions uh, then about blame and blameworthiness and agency. Um, and so maybe some of way to get into these is to sort of con- contrast the ambiguous experience account with this other account, namely this, the, the, the structural account. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, so I take the structural account to be another alternative to that motivational account I rejected at the beginning, and, and one I'm more sympathetic to, but I'm also going to reject it as well. So let me explain the structural account. The idea is that um, for somebody to count as a microaggression, it needs to be causally linked to a bigger social structure of repeatedly reasserting hierarchy. So small acts that put people in their place, remind them of their place, and that set up a kind of plausible deniability so that if people who are being put in their place reject it, they will not be believed and they'll be further marginalized. And you can see some common some common connections to the um, to the view I've articulated. It's, it's fairly close to the ambiguous experience account, but the focus here is not on the experience of the individual. It's, it's, on the, it's, it's a basically a big metaphysical claim about social structure. So notice that on the structural account, it's an account as a microaggression. It must be true that there is this structural embedding. The perception of the person involved doesn't matter. And what that means is if a person says, Ah, I didn't perceive any oppression there. I, 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 yeah, I'm a member of a marginalized group, but I did not perceive any oppression in this circumstance. They could be wrong about that. It could actually be a microaggression, even though they themselves say it's not. Because on the structural account, what makes it the case that it counts as a microaggression is a structural feature of the, of the social world, nothing really about their personal experience. And this is where I, I tend to resist the structural account because I think it's really important when dealing with uh, experiences of marginalization to generally defer to people's own judgments. And I, I've, I've found that a lot of times, it, here's a quick example to help us see it, um, a very familiar microaggression in the literature that's been talked about for years by people writing about this is the, where are you from microaggression? It's the asking a person of color, oh, where are you from? As asking this question in a predominantly white place, like in Canada or in America, um, and the person says, oh, I'm from, I'm from, um, I'm from Montreal. Um, the questioner says, yeah, but where are you really from? And the implication being, if you're not white, you must be from somewhere else. Where, where's your family from? Okay, so this is a, a standard microaggression in the literature. However, um, when I've given, when I've presented that example at talks sometimes, particularly for public audiences, I remember particularly at the Brooklyn Public Library, I've had people of color in the audience raise their hand and say, yeah, I get that question. I love that question. It gives me a chance to talk about family history. There's nothing wrong with that question. In fact, I don't want you discouraging people from asking me that question because it gives me a chance to talk about something I'm interested in. And I've, I've the, the first couple of times I got that pushback, I was really like, well, how am I, speaking not as a person of color, going to be stepping in and telling people of color that they're just wrong, that this has to count as a microaggression and a topic of moral concern because structurally patterns like that tend to typically involve the, these, these destabilizing or... or um, are, are mistreating ways, even though their personal experience doesn't reflect that to them. And so for, it's for that reason that I'm hesitant to fully lean into this structural account, even though parts of it definitely play a role in my theory. So 
basically that was a long-winded explanation, but a way of kind of marking out what I take to be the the boundaries on what we want to say here. I don't want to deny people's experiences of, of whether or not they feel they've been mistreated, because doing so can be talking over them. But I also don't want to make this all about matters of non-conscious psychology that we can't get access to. And so the compromise position is this idea of deferring to their experience. And like you said, then that leads on to these really tricky questions about how to decide whether or not to blame people. Because we saw before with the microaggression, or sorry, with the motivational account of microaggression, that it's really tricky to blame people for prejudice when that prejudice, I'm using scare quotes here, is in their uh, non-conscious psychology and they don't know about it. We have really traditional problems in philosophical theory thinking about whether or not people can be held blameworthy for things they don't have control over. So if some bit of their non-conscious psychology is driving them to do something and they don't know they're doing it, it seems a bit unfair to blame them for that. Similarly, if according to the structural account, what they're doing is just a local manifestation of a big structural project that they don't actually have control over. It's, you know, it's Pierce's image of the football team pushing people around the field and causing them to do whatever, then they don't have... Um, the, the individual doesn't even know what they're doing in that social structure. Again, it doesn't seem really fair to blame them for that or to blame them for the cumulative effects of lots of other players on the field, as it were, moving in their own independent ways. And so no matter what way we're looking at this, there are traditional philosophical problems with assigning full-scale blame, saying you've done wrong, you deserve to be blamed for it. And so that's also true on the ambiguous experience account. I think no matter what we're going to do with microaggression, we have to concede that since microaggressions are often cases where people don't have control over what they're doing, and the harm has to do with this iterative, socially repeated for patterns of oppression, it is a bit un unreasonable often to lay full-scale blame on the individual perpetrators. Well, good. So let me pick up on that, because um, I take it that the issue is not... Um only a question about the extent um, or the degree of blame and blameworthiness, but also the, you know, the kind of blame, right? So you make a distinction um, between sort of what might be a, what, what's most familiarly uh, understood when we're talking about blame, which is sort of assigning uh, liability <laughs> uh, and moral failing uh, to another person for something that they have done, so that in this case, um, blame in this liability sense has a sort of backward-looking kind of um, feature to it. But um, drawing on uh, some work that, uh, at least just now some unsolicited autobiography <laughs> that uh, you know I'm familiar with mainly from Bernard Williams, um, this idea of blame as a sort of proleptic mechanism um, and you've got a, uh, an account of um, the sort of, uh, you know, a, a practical uh, uh, um, uh, conception of what can be done uh, given all the ambiguity about agency and blameworthiness in the traditional sense of that latter term, uh, what can be done about microaggression, which is this wielding of blame in a way that you say has is proleptic and therefore needs to be skillful. Can you fill in the details there? Sure, of course. Yeah. So we're, we're getting, we're, we're in the second half of the book now. And, right. and I just to sort of set up the, the stakes for people, I, I halfway through the book at the end of the fourth chapter, I say something like, well, provisionally we should conclude some of the following uh, microaggressions are real in an important sense. Oppression is real. This is a real social problem that needs to be fixed. However, in most cases, the people who are perpetrating microaggressions don't deserve blame, at least not in any traditional philosophical sense. Like you just said, they're not, it doesn't really make sense to assign blame for the individual mistakes to them. So what do we do? And I take off from there, borrowing an idea from the philosopher Cheshire Calhoun. His, um, one of her fantastic papers, this is just my favorite papers in all philosophy, is called Responsibility and Reproach. It's from a bit over 30 years ago. And in that paper, she's talking about um, sexist attitudes in the 1980s, that the historical context is it's even more sexist than it is now, right? Even more open sexism in the workplace. And she's writing about people who um, she calls the old-fashioned man, a person, a, a man who, say, was brought up in the 40s or the 1950s with some implicitly sexist attitudes. If you call him out on it, he'll say, ah, yeah, maybe, maybe I shouldn't treat women in quite that way, but what am I going to do? I was raised that way. And she says, you know, actually, 
strictly speaking, he might be right. It might be that he can't really control his own history in such a way that would make him less likely to do those, at least not easily. It's, it's not like he's doing it on purpose. However, this is the key point, she says, if we don't blame people who technically have an excuse, then they won't change. Unless we bring out some sort of moral censure, some form of moral reaction, then people aren't going to stop engaging in the unreflective patterns that have been leading them to behave this way all in the past. And so the, the striking claim of that paper, the thing that I've Makes, makes it a favorite paper of mine is that she Calhoun is saying stuff that seems like it can't both be right, which is these people don't deserve to be blamed, but we got to blame them anyway. And I think certain social systems, there's something right about that. And so the way I hook this up is borrowing this term, you is you noted from Bernard Williams, proleptic blame. So let me just introduce that quickly and then put it all together for everybody. So Great. Williams is talking about, this is, this is, people might be familiar, this endless debate between Williams and others about internalism, about moral reasons. I won't go into the whole debate here, but Williams is basically trying to explain how could we use moral reasoning with somebody who doesn't even accept the basic uh, motivations of the moral belief we hold. So if somebody is is like just doesn't care about the thing we're telling them is morally wrong, what's even the point of telling them that it's morally wrong? Why should I bother telling somebody don't do that if they don't even if they don't even feel like they care about the thing I'm telling them is a bad thing to do? And Williams uh, kind of on the side, it's kind of a, a tangent for him as he's having this fight about the nature of moral reasons. He says, well, sometimes we engage in proleptic blame, which is where we blame somebody for doing something and they at least initially aren't going to see even any merit in our blaming them because they don't think it's wrong at all. However, it's proleptic in the sense that we're communicating to them that our moral esteem towards them is in some way contingent on their coming to appreciate the value of the thing we're pointing out to them. So it basically it's, I am blaming you in the sense that, look, I don't approve of what you're doing morally, and my moral opinion of you would be improved if you were to do better, and it's not going to improve if you don't do better. So even though you might not care about the thing I'm blaming you for failing to do, Nevertheless, um, I hope this will be motivating to you because you care about my moral esteem. So the idea here back in the world of microaggression is to put these thoughts together. We People might not deserve full-scale traditional blame, as Calhoun suggests, but if we don't do something, then people aren't going to change. And so the thought here is that we need to develop a form of proleptic blame for responding to microaggression, which is basically saying, saying to people, yep, we can't say for sure that you deserve blame in the full-scale sense, but yeah, what you did is harmful. You're contributing to a harmful pattern that makes people's lives worse, and our moral esteem for you is going to depend upon you doing whatever you can to improve. And whatever you can might be really hard. It might be like retraining your implicit patterns of behavior so you you, you know you don't unreflectively say stuff. A quick example of this. Um, I, I was a teenager in the 1990s, and back then people used to use the expression, that's so gay, as a dismissive. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's so gay. That band is so gay. That TV show, that's so gay. And this obviously is homophobic. It's basically saying being gay is bad. But a lot of people back then would say this phrase unreflectively. And I think uh, a lot of people I know grew up and then thought, oh, goodness, I feel really bad for having said that because I had I didn't know it at the time. It was the 1990s. My friends weren't out yet, but I had gay friends who probably were hearing me say that and not appreciating it. And I feel bad about it. And now it's like 2004 and I'm trying to be progressive, but I can't quit saying this instinctual, unreflective thing. And so proleptic blame in that situation is about saying, yeah, maybe it's not really your fault that you, as a teenager, you picked up this expression, but, um, but if you're not going to work really hard now to make yourself stop doing it, then my moral esteem for you is not going to be forthcoming. And I hope you find that motivating. So that's the idea there. It's kind of a motivational workaround to a, a philosophical concession that technically blame isn't deserved. Can you, um, one little um, sort of getting into the philosophical weeds on this, I think mm-hmm. might be helpful. Sure. So could you um, just explain um, how the sort of Williams-esque or the sort of Williams thought about the prolepsis or the proleptic function of blame, how that is supposed to be forward-looking, both as you and Williams construe it forward-looking yet not purely consequentialist and if we could use a Strassonian term purely objective attitude stuff right it's not purely seeing 
people as things to be directed and and sort of um, wound up in particular ways so that they go off in particular directions, that the proleptic aspect is supposed to capture the forward-lookingness without a, embracing a sort of what we might think of as kind of like a brute consequentialist view. Yeah, it's a really tough line to walk. Um, and I think you're right to to recognize the the Strassonian framework that's that's looming in the background here. In, in the chapter in the book where I lay this out, I spent a lot of time ping ponging between like brute. Uh, I use um, B. F. Skinner, the behaviorist psychologist, right. who thinks of moral blame as just an enforcement mechanism, which which I think is not the right way of thinking about it. Uh, and then more soft ways of thinking about it as a relationship constituting uh, activity. Um, and what I'm trying to do is figure out a middle route. So I think you're right that this is really really uh, hard to make clear that it's supposed to be simultaneously motivationally efficacious, so it's got causal properties, but also it's not supposed to be purely causal. And the thought there is this idea of moral esteem or the fact that you care about what I think about you, not just because you're trying to be, you know, in the Skinnerian rat in a maze way, trying to avoid getting shocked by my moral disapprobation or the thought that I might, you know, not invite you to a conference because I'm mad at you, but rather that you, it just matters to you directly. You are directly motivated by the thought that I think poorly of you. You want to have my moral esteem. You want to be in a relationship with me where we esteem one another. We want to be sort of, we want to have a kind of parody of moral, um, moral approbation for one another. So it's not just the like the, the purely aversive feeling, it's rather the sense of I want to be in this sustained moral relationship. And so that's the thing that's really hard. You know, if you want to be a hardcore um, reductive, causal reductivist, you can you can just turn all of that into Skinnerian reinforcements. That's what Skinner does. But you don't have to read it that way. And, and what I'm pushing for is this more kind of Kantian view that says the space of reasons is constituted by this mutual esteem we hold for one another and the way that our discourse is a, is a kind of signaling or negotiation of how our esteem will be affected by each other's choices. Well, that's great. That, that was exactly the kind of thing I was, uh, I, I was uh, look, the kind of explanation uh, or filling in the details I was looking for. So um, now the final chapters of the book um, offer, you know, some practical suggestions about doing better, um, and both to avoid um, committing uh, microaggression, um, but also um, how we can um, adopt sort of strategies for wielding blame in this proleptic sense uh, more skillfully. Um, and so I want to ask you sort of a, 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 a two-parter because you've been very generous with your time. Uh, and I want to make sure we get this 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 bit of the, the 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 finale of the book up. So there's sort of like two thoughts. One is the sort of we've got to do certain things better, both as um, uh, perpetrators or at least potential perpetrators, um, and as call, people who are going to call out. Uh, we're going to wield proleptic blame. And then this the second thing I'd, I'd like you to to speak a little bit to is the you know. Um, one of the features, uh, which I thought was yeah, very nice and compelling, uh, one of the the the, the upshots of um, this idea about proleptic blame as being the right kind of response to microaggression is that um, uh, it is the product of the rec- the recognition that microaggressors can't be um, blamed in the liability sense for what they do. But it turns out that they can be liability blamed for not being receptive to the proleptic blame, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> so can you can you can you spell those two sort of the, the the thoughts that come together towards the end of the book out for us? Sure. Yeah. So the idea here is that we're on this really delicate, hard to specify thing. This idea of proleptic blame that's supposed to be causally efficacious, but also respectful. It's also engaging with a person as a user of moral reasons. And so it can't just be Skinnery and rats in a maze, that kind of thing. And it can't just be going on Twitter and piling 30,000 people on somebody to make them feel really in pain so they, they, they hide. Right? That, that's not what's on the table here. That's not what I'm advising. And so the idea here is we need to be able to offer people pathways to making things better that might not be just the blunt advice, do better or stop doing that. Because those aren't often helpful pieces of advice if people aren't in control of the mistakes they're making. 
And so the thought is, um, I can't go all, all of them right now, but the book sure. surveys a bunch of different ways that people can improve their behavior over time through things such as rehabituating to new patterns of speech or to new choices they can make when, when what they were doing to begin with wasn't thought out carefully, when they were just instinctually doing things that were harmful. Um, so that's one thing we can do. Other thing we can do is participate in big structural changes, obviously trying to address fundamental problems of oppression, uh, economic injustice, of, of disordered, um, uh, repressive, I'm sorry, I've got a cat helping me now, um, <laughs> disordered and repressive uh, legal systems, we, we can work to address all of those. So those are ways in which individual people can get control of the structural factors that are driving oppressive mistreatment, even if they can't in the moment control their own individual habitual behaviors. It's a kind of diachronic way of contributing to making things better, even if you are making mistakes in the moment. And so part of my thought in these chapters in the book is that if you refuse to do that, if you refuse to play any role in this diachronic or structural change, then you can actually become liability blameworthy in traditional sense. Because now you are in volitional control of what you're doing and you are choosing knowingly to not take actions that will help you become less harmful to others. It's a little bit like, you know, you have the chance to buy a recycling bin you could, you've got the money, you could buy it right now. And you're like, no, nah, I'm not going to. And then a week later, when you didn't recycle anything, you're going to say, oh, what was I going to do? There was no recycling bin. Well, at that point, you've set it up to make sure you fail. And at that point, you can deserve liability blame in a way you might have been if you'd never heard of recycling. So that's roughly the idea there. It gets converted to a form of legitimate liability blame if you had the chance to make things better and you didn't. So let me just ask one um, one philosophical question. So when this transfer happens, does the person now subject to liability blame because of their insensitivity to the proleptic blame become liable for the microaggression or for the insensitivity to the prolepsis? Uh, the latter. Yeah. So the thought is that the original microaggression may not have been something that was, uh, that, was um, that, that they deserve liability blame for. But um, the, well, actually, I want to be careful here because it depends. Yeah, on the, yeah, because, depends on the uh, case. There's a wrinkle here, right? <laughs> yeah, there's a wrinkle. No, it depends on the case because it could be. I mean, think about it. Like, um, think about it again with the recycling thing. Um, suppose you'd never heard of recycling, and up until now, you've just been throwing out recyclable stuff. We might say maybe you don't deserve liability blame retrospectively, but now that I've told you about recycling and I've offered you a recycling bin, and you're like, nah, I don't need it. Even though now your future failures to recycle might be unreflective and might not meet the full condition, control condition of blame, from now on, because you had the chance to avoid it, you might be you might be deserving of liability to blame. Now, of course, it depends on the details, et cetera, et cetera. That's not going to be true for every microaggression, but there might be cases where, yeah, look, you had a route available to you where it would have taken a bit of work on your part to prevent you from making the same mistake again. And if through sheer laziness you just didn't bother and then you might become um, a good target for liability blame in the future. Right. Um, yeah, there, uh, you know, you've, you've got me thinking of philosophical thought. But um, uh, for now, though, you know, you've been so generous with your time. I'm not going to uh, uh, press you on, 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 on what I was just thinking. But, um, you know, before we uh, before we close the interview, you know, this has been a, a really fantastic book, so it's a cruel question to ask. But you know, what's your next project? Oh goodness! Uh, well, no, it's a it's a fun a fun thing to think about. So the way I got into this book was through social media, and the last chapter of the book talks about how social media right. is a really bad way of handling microaggression. That it it tends almost inevitably towards the sort of shame and and the uh, the, the sort of coercive punishment way of responding to microaggression, which is not the right way to handle it. Um, and, and I try to trace how a lot of my original skepticism was because I was worried about what I saw happening on social media. So the next book isn't about microaggression. It's about social media itself. And so I'm going to be I'm writing now about how social media is changing the way we relate to one another, both in epistemic terms and how we use information and we get tricked by fake news, but also how we start to regard each other as enemies and people to fight with rather than as co-participants in shared democratic decision making. And so the next book, which hopefully will be out in about two years, if I'm lucky, um, is an attempt to identify the, the, the warning signs of how we're being changed culturally by our regular use of social media. Well, that sounds fascinating. And um, yeah, you know, 
in two years, who knows what will be different from. <laughs> I know. Yeah, I know. I'll be on TikTok and by then nobody will even be using Facebook. I don't know. <laughs> well, that, that would be a positive development. Um, so, uh, Regina, I, I, I really want to thank you for, uh, for joining me today on New Books in Philosophy. It's been really, really great to talk about, uh, to talk about your new book. Well, thank you so much. These are great questions, and I really enjoyed the conversation. I'm glad to hear that. Um, and thank you, listeners, uh, for joining us for this discussion. Uh, I'll remind you, um, we've been talking with Regina Rini. Um, her new book is out with Routledge. Uh, It's titled The Ethics of Microaggression. Thanks for listening to New Books in Philosophy, and bye for now.